Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. So, Cass, our very regular listeners will remember that a few weeks back, we had um, a very fun episode on floriography, which is, of course, the Victorian language and symbolism of flowers. And at the very tail end of that episode, I kind of teased that we would indeed cover the rose in an upcoming episode. And, well, that episode is now. It is today. And not only is it today, it is also now two episodes, because there is so, so, so much to say on this topic. Yes, and that is why today we are so pleased to announce that we are being joined by Amy DeLaHaye, the author of the newly released The Rose in Fashion, Ravishing. And also, she is a co-curator of an upcoming exhibition at the museum at FIT, which will explore this very same topic. Yes. And her co-curator on this project is our lovely friend, Colleen Hill, who has yet to join us on Dressed, but she will do so soon. (laughs) Yes, Colleen. Uh, I hate to pester my friends who are like, I'm working on my PhD right now and also working full time, but (laughs) she will join us. But um, the exhibition itself was actually slated to open this past September. Well, you know, pandemic. 2020. Everything's been postponed. So um, we very much look forward to seeing this exhibition when it does open in the future. Absolutely. And this exhibition has been in the works for quite some time, and it's been an international effort. Of course, the museum at FAT is in New York City, while Professor De La Haye is in London. She is the Ruth Steen Hopkins Chair of Dress History and Curatorship at the London College of Fashion, where she co-directs with Judith Clark. And for so many years, Amy worked as a curator at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, of course, which has one of the most significant fashion and textile collections worldwide. Amy, we are so pleased to welcome you to Dressed. Amy, I'd like to start today first by asking how you came to the field of fashion studies. This is actually something that I've been asking a lot of our guests recently, and it's always so interesting. And, you know, I'm always delighted to hear some of our favorite scholars, quote unquote, origin stories. Well, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I grew up in Brighton on the south coast of England and was interested in sort of there was a big punk scene, and then a big goth and new romantic scene. I was always interested in dress. I always loved textiles, but I also knew I didn't want to work in elite fashion and certainly not in the fashion industry. 
I found a course, in fact, my mother found the course at Brighton Art School, and it was a course called Design History, and it was the second year it had been established. And whilst I'd been accepted at universities elsewhere in the country, I stayed in my hometown, partly because Brighton was a brilliant place to grow up, but because there was a course run by Lou Taylor on the history of fashion. And the minute I read about that, I thought, that's the course for me. And actually doing Lou's unit and meeting Lou changed my life because I'd had an indifferent early education and I'd never been inspired. And Lou totally, totally inspired me. So I did the design history course, always chose Lou's options. Um, the first course I remember intently was looking at fashion characteristic Lou of all levels from 1850 to 1900. So to me, undeniably, the most desirable seminar choice was to choose Worth and look at those amazing sort of bustles and crinoline gowns in Paris. But it was a question of who shouted first and I was shy. So I ended up with the, the conditions of working class tailors in London's East End instead of the um, crinoline. <laughs> and I can't tell you, I was devastated. <laughs> anyway, I went at the end of the session, Lou spoke to us all. And within five minutes of talking to her, I was inspired. And I think it changed the whole course of my interest, because from that point on, although I've come back to Worth, from that point on, my interest was in working class history, in everyday lives, in the reality of fashion as opposed to fashion's myth. So I did my degree thesis in 1984 on um, the influence of Hollywood on cheap levels of ready-to-wear fashion in the 1930s in America. Mm -hmm. um, I then went to the Royal College of Art and wrote a 40,000-word thesis and got an MA in cultural history. And my subject was looking at um, the development of cheap levels of ready-to-wear in Britain in the 1920s and 30s, looking at the reality as opposed to the myth. So using snapshots as evidence, doing lots of oral testimony, and looking at the development of the women's fashion trades. And in that, I basically argued that it was the design of fashion rather than the technology that saw the commercialization of women's ready-to-wear fashion. As now, it was really hard to get a job. But at the time, I mean, I think it's important to say as well to younger listeners that it wasn't a fashionable occupation. Being a fashion curator or wanting to be a fashion curator wasn't a fashionable option right. in 1986. And at that point, I wasn't even sure I wanted to be a curator because I'd not seen fashion exhibitions that were incredibly inspiring. But then I went to see Body Works at the V&A, which was a Simiaki, and I saw Valerie Mendes's Ashes textiles exhibition and John French exhibitions at the V&A and I suddenly started thinking oh this is really something quite special so I tried and tried to get jobs and worked in shops and restaurants I got a part-time job in a small museum called Hove Museum near Brighton where I worked three days a week and did absolutely everything which was an amazing training I did that for four years and at the same time I taught with Lou um, the fashion and textile students at Brighton and I worked on a BBC social history and fashion history series that Lou worked on called Through the Looking Glass, which went out on BBC TV in Britain in 1986, which was brilliant. And then one day I simply was coming home from teaching, very stressed because I found it very, very intimidating, um, with a huge pile of books from the library. And I thought, I'm going to buy The Guardian and have a cup of coffee and sit down. But I saw the advert for the V&A and I just thought, well, I'll apply it an experiment, you know, I've never looked after a dress collection. Let's see if I even get an interview. Anyway, the most amazing thing happened and I got the job, which was completely life-changing. 
it was a complete U-turn having professed a sort of disinterest in elite fashion and <laughs> um but I got that job in 1991 worked with Valerie Mendes and Avril Hart who mentored me and were completely amazing and I'm forever indebted to both of them and I went to the V&A and then did high fashion things like looking at British fashion identity but in 1994 did the street style exhibition which argued that if the V&A focused upon fashion that leads, which was one of its criteria, that actually, especially in Britain at the time, subcultural fashion was hugely influential and was actually determining a lot of the styles on the catwalk. So um, Kathy Dingwall and I acquired about 150 head-to-toe outfits from people who self-identified as a particular subculture, including radically at the time, what we then described as lesbian and gay style, which obviously today we'd call sort of LGBTQ. And I stayed at the V&A till 1999. I felt I'd done what I could do. It was an amazing job. Um, I had a child, went to work with Shearing Guild in the fashion industry, which I loved. Took a job one day a week at London College of Fashion and did a lot of work at Brighton Museum. And then the job at London College of Fashion crept up and crept up. And now for about maybe the last four or five years, I've worked full time there and it's turned into an incredible job. And here we are. Voila. You know, a, a lot of our listeners have asked and also a lot of the grad students, right when they come out of uh, school with their MA, they always are like, oh, I can't find a full-time job. I can't find a curatorial position. And what I always tell them is that every single person out there who has written all these books and that whose name you know, at the beginning, everyone hustles. Like, Everyone hustles. And, and a lot of times it's like you're working multiple jobs, like trying to like cobble this career together. And it really does. It takes years to get to that point. Years. It does. And I think I didn't know anyone. You know, I didn't have any connections anywhere. Um, I worked in bars, restaurant shops, you know, anything I got offered. I just spent a lifetime preparing for it. <laughs> um, did my best. And yeah, I worked. But I have to say, getting the V&A job was the most amazing break. Yes. And you've published many, many books. We are going to talk about one specifically today. Um, it's hot off the press. I think the copy I got came, arrived before it was even available. So thank you. Yeah, I think you got yours before I got mine. <laughs> <laughs> And um, the book is actually an exhibition catalog, um, which was to accompany an exhibition of the same name, which is Ravishing the Rose in Fashion. And this was supposed to open this past September at the museum at FIT. Can you tell us a little bit about how this project came to be? Because, of course, you are in London and the museum at FIT is in New York. Um, most of my projects are ignited by a desire to interpret objects or groups of documents that relate to fashion or women's lives. And I always said that I was an object-based curator, but actually the more I look back on the work I've done, I'm actually interested in people's lives and I'm interested in looking at how dress influences people's lives, especially women, I have to say. And so a lot of my projects have been about lives lived. And Roses is a completely different departure. The Roses idea was ignited by three sources. One was another project I was working on. I came across some lines in a poem by T.S. Eliot in Burnt Norton from 1936. And he wrote, for the roses had the look of flowers that are looked at. And this kept going round and round in my head. And I kept thinking, I'm going to do something with that one day. And then I've always completely adored Nick Knight's Roses from My Garden images. So whenever I've gone on to show studio and seen Nick Knight, 
I've not really talked about fashion. We've talked about a shared love of gardening. <laughs> And me completely adoring these sublime images of roses and much more deeper rooted is my mother's completely lifelong love of roses. You know, whatever you offer her for a birthday, she'll always have another rose plant and a rose shrub or um, climbing rose. And I just started formulating the idea of an exhibition, which I discussed with um, Dr. Valerie Steele, who's the inspirational director, at, obviously is the Museum of the Fashion Institute of Technology, and Colleen Hill, fashion curator at the museum, who is studying for a PhD with me um, at London College of Fashion. And we just started talking about this idea and then I was completely over the moon that they liked the idea. And I'm very, very honored to be now working with Colleen on this exhibition at FIT. Yeah, and we cannot wait for it to open up. It's still pending, we don't know when, but coming soon. And of course, we will let all of our listeners know when that does finally open. Thank you. Can I just say one thing, which is that the book is actually, and I keep forgetting this myself, the book is called The Rose in Fashion Ravishing. Oh, okay. Great. Simply because when people Google it, Yale said we needed to put The Rose in Fashion first because more people would find it. And the exhibition is called Ravishing The Rose in Fashion. Okay. So they're sister titles, flip-flopped. Yes. <laughs> Um, so before we get into talking about garments and how roses have been worn historically, I'm hoping that first you can tell us a little bit about the history of the rose. So about the genus Rosa itself and what regions of the world do we find them growing in historically? Well, first of all, I must say I'm absolutely not a botanist, but I obviously did some historical research and I did rely on the most amazing book by a woman called Jennifer Potter, who wrote a book called The Rose. Mm -hmm. But in terms of research, genus rosa dates back some 35 to 40 million years. And although often we think of the rose as perhaps a fragile flower, um, it's incredibly resilient, it's promiscuous, and it's rebunctuous, which is a word I love. And that accounts for its longevity and its mutability and also its broad geographic sweep. So roses have been cultivated in China since at least 500 BC. They grow across Korea, Japan, Siberia, across much of Asia, India, the Arabian Peninsula, across nearly all of Europe, North Africa, and North and Latin America. So most cultures are familiar with the rose and the rose is embedded within many sort of myths and religions and fictional narratives across the world. And the first undisputed image of the rose um, is the bluebird fresco um, from the House of Frescoes in Nossos in Crete. Um, and that dates back about 1500 years BC. And it's the most beautiful image of a, of a wild rose. Yeah, it's gorgeous. And there's, a, there's an image of it in the book, which is really charming. <laughs> uh, speaking of um, the ancient world, uh, one of the most charming tidbits about the rose in the ancient world that I learned about in your book was the story of, I'm going to say this wrong, I'm sure Heliogabulus. Um, and there's a stunning, stunningly beautiful two-page spread of a painting by Lawrence Alma Tadema from 1888, which is illustrating this story. And I had never heard this story before. So would you share it with our listeners? Yes, absolutely. Well, in ancient Rome, the rose was completely adored. So adored that an annual festival was held in its honor every year called Rosalia. Roses were completely entwined with the culture. They were part of cuisine. They were part of like wine culture. Medicinal, they were used for medicinal purposes. You know, they were awarded usually to men for great acts or virtues. 
And interestingly, in Roman times, um, it was the men that wore perfume that smelled of roses and women tended to prefer stronger scents. So whether it's true or not, legend has it, there was this completely hedonistic Roman emperor called Heliogabalus, and he is renowned for having the most lavish, extravagant feasts to which hundreds of guests were invited. And as part of sort of Roman excess and adoration of roses, he would have canopies above the tables filled with thousands and thousands and thousands um, of rose petals that would be showered onto the guests. <laughs> and legend has it that on at least one occasion, the immersion of roses was so great that one or more guests actually suffocated by roses. <laughs> and as we know, in the 19th century, culture was completely inspired by Rome, um, looked at in ways that were considered, you know, that Rome had great virtues, but also um, was a sort of associated with sort of sin and excess and degradation. And in 1888, Alma Tadema, the artist um, painted the most beautiful, enormous painting called The Roses of Heligabalus, which recreated the scene that he'd imagined of this feast. And it took him ages to paint it. And during the process, he had he used to import um, crate loads of roses from the French Riviera. Wow. So they always had a supply of fresh roses to paint. That is amazing story. And if I have to go drowning in rose petals, I'm going to say it's not a bad way to go. No, sublime <laughs> suffocation. <laughs> We're going to take a very brief sponsor break here, but more with Professor Delahaye when we come back. Welcome back. So, Amy, um, one of the things that you and I spoke about when you were at FIT researching the book is that I was telling you a story how I had kind of put two and two together when Cassidy and I were working on our Pochoir book that we realized that the illustrator, Paul Arib, who um, was—he he designed that very famous— logo for the French couturier Paul Paré. And, and, and the, the logo is a rose, an illustration of a rose. It's actually oftentimes referred to as the Arib rose because it is so famous. But we realized that Arib's much, much earlier work as a satirical illustrator, oftentimes he used the rose in some of his like naughtier, bodier illustrations as this kind of metaphor for female sex organs. But Arib was far from the first artist to make this association of the rose with love, sensuality, and even sometimes sexuality. So just how far back do these associations with the rose actually go? Well, that was amazing research that you did. And you were very generous and said that I could use it in my book, but I also felt very strongly that it was your research and that <laughs> you, should, you should use it. Someday it'll be a paper or a conference yeah, absolutely. lecture yeah. or something. Well, I suppose sexuality lies at the core of a flower's existence. And more than any other flower, the rose has been personified and analogies drawn between it and the human body, sexuality and female fertility. I mean, not specifically applying to the rose, but the term deflower mm -hmm. has been used to describe sexual penetration, certainly, I think, since the 17th century. And by the 18th century, naturalists interpreted stamen of the rose as male and the flower as sort of like womb-like and feminine. And the rose bud, I think, has become like a near universal metaphor for lips, nipples, um, clitoris, and sometimes the anus too. Mm -hmm. So perhaps more than any other flower, the rose has become inextricably entwined with 
perceptions and interpretations of the body. And also, I would argue, of course, I would argue, but um, also in terms of fashion and dress appearance, too. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And, and, and you know, countless artists and writers throughout history have used the rose, you know, in the way that we were just speaking of to kind of signify romance or sensuality. But we also learned that the rose holds a whole host of other meanings as well. Would you tell us a little bit more about some of these alternate meanings? Because, you know, you just mentioned, uh, you know, fashion. And I think especially we see a lot of these other alternate meanings play out in the way that the rose is used in fashion specifically. Well, I think straight away the rose is incredibly appealing because of the extreme beauty and fragrance of the flower, which is juxtaposed with its savage and deterrent thorns. I mean, technically they're prickles, but I'm using the term thorns throughout this project because the term thorns has become so embedded in the mythologizing of the rose, which are a complete conjunction of opposites, which is obviously really wildly appealing to artists and writers and designers. Mm -hmm. Variously drawn allusions to, as you say, love, beauty, sexuality, but also to sin, gendered identities, rites of passage, transgression and degradation and death. There have been exhibitions in the past about flowers. Um, I think in 1995, the Met did the exhibition on bloom. And there's been an exhibition at the Rose, at the um, Garden Museum in London that did an exhibition on flowers. And quite recently, the most amazing exhibition I saw um, was on roses, which was curated by Sarah Moa and Sarah Burton from Alexander McQueen and Alexander McQueen's flagship Strutch Store, which looked at the process of making their incredible rose fashions. And so, Throughout time, as you suggest, the rose has been used and interpreted in very, very different ways. A lot of that has to do with colour symbolism, Mm -hmm. white being associated with purity across many, many cultures, being associated with the Virgin Mary, whereas red's associated with sort of passion, sexual union, and black, although there is literally no black um, flower in nature, there's the deepest, deepest purple associated with death. So... Within dress, different coloured roses have become associated with rites of passage, mm-hmm. from sort of ingenue debutante dress through to bridal dress, and then associated with mourning as well. And lots of the traditions that we associate with roses were established in the 19th century, often based on the Roman period. And they've become, I suppose, part of a language that is fairly widely understood. So, I mean, even like the form of the flower, the bud being associated with virginity and the full blown flower being associated with sexual maturity. And then there's the whole debate about natural and unnatural roses. Mm -hmm. In the mid 19th century, there was hybridization. Hybridization wasn't universally popular, whilst many florists and designers absolutely adored the possibilities of roses that flowered multiple times that were incredibly fragrant and could be crossbred. There was a whole group of people who were also completely anti-hybridization, including the arts and crafts movement and the Mm pre-Raphaelites who favored the natural eglantine rose. And so within anti-fashion, what we might describe as anti-fashion or artistic dress in the late 19th century, when we look at the women, they're wearing natural roses in their hair. They're not wearing cultivated roses. They tend to reject the cultivated rose. And so we get the eglantine rose. And that also finds its way into literature I'm thinking, for instance, of the writer George Sand, who wore menswear, mm-hmm. kind of without a rose in sight, <sighs> but wrote the most wonderful book for her grandchildren in which she kind of imagined another world. And in that, she wrote about the hybridised roses were 
artificial and vain and spiteful and the natural roses were kind and generous and um and so that sort of natural unnatural tension also runs through the history of roses in design as well as fashion and broader sort of cultural expressions yeah and i'd like to maybe perhaps investigate that interest in botany a little bit further specifically in the context of 18th century textiles and Colleen who is of course your fabulous PhD student right now and a very close friend of mine as well. And the co-curator of the exhibition. Yes, yes, absolutely. And co-curator of this exhibition. Colleen's really lovely chapter in the book focuses on the use of the rose as a decorative motif in textiles, specifically in the 18th century. So why is it that botanicals like the rose were so heavily favored as motifs during this period for both men and women? And, And you touched on the 19th century a little bit, but I'm wondering if we could just maybe tiptoe back to the 18th for just a second. There's a huge interest in roses in the 18th century, not least because they become available for certainly middle-class families and those with sort of middle-class and higher incomes to grow their own. And so decorative gardening becomes the greatest sort of trend, whereas before plants, had, a lot of plants have been grown for medicinal or culinary purposes. And so to grow flowers for purely decorative reasons, it was a sign of sort of wealth. There's quite a sort of decadence of sort of intelligentsia. It also coincides with Carl Linnaeus, who was sort of regarded as the father of classification. And he likened the reproduction of flowers to sexual reproduction in human beings. There's a big boon in the print industry where there's lots of botanical engravings. And then famous royals like, you know, Madame Pompadour and Marie Antoinette profess this huge interest in roses. They wear rose-decorated textiles, woven silks from sort of Spitalfields and Lyon, embroidered textiles, fresh roses, artificial roses. They wear them in their hair. They wear them all over, decorating their clothes. And interestingly, it's not only women that wear rose-decorated fashions, as you said, in the 18th century. It's also men because... Interestingly, flowers don't really become gendered feminine until the 19th century. And so flowers are considered a sign of learning, of of an awareness of the natural world, and part of this huge movement within naturalism. And so there's a shift from sort of abstraction towards more naturalistic depictions of roses, partly because people have access to natural roses and to images of roses. Mm -hmm. And FIT's got some beautiful, beautiful examples there's a gorgeous robe à la française from, I think, circa about 1785. There's a blue menswear suit from the earlier in 18th century. And then waistcoats, which become one of the sites of floral decoration, which is continued into the 19th and 20th century. There's some amazing late 19th century rose-patterned waistcoats in the collection, which will exhibit. And there is just nothing like seeing the, that 18th century embroidery up close because it is just spectacular. Like you don't, you don't see anything that looks like that today. No, the shading. <laughs> yeah. The, subtlety, the shading, the use of different kinds of threads. Um, and then also, of course, in the 18th century, there's painted textiles, which are completely exquisite. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some amazing examples of, you know, the finest, finest, it's the ultimate luxury to have a dress made from a painted silk. Yeah. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? 
because you can by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Speaking of ultimate luxury, I'm also glad that you brought up in the 18th century women wearing roses in their hair because frequently these poof hairstyles like that Marie Antoinette and among others um, made so famous, a lot of times when they were wearing flowers in their hair, they were hiding little tiny water vases within this kind of structure to keep the flowers fresh. But of course, not everybody could wear fresh flowers in their hair all the time. So there is this, this whole other industry that began producing what you call permanent botanicals, which I had never heard before. And I just love that phrase. It's genius. Um, so this industry of permanent botanicals really began to flourish. What are permanent botanicals? And would you tell us a little bit about their early history? Yes, I mean, permanent botanicals is the most beautiful phrase. And I wish I could lay claim to it, but I absolutely can't. <laughs> it's a phrase which I think dates back to about the ancient Egyptian times. And certainly artificial flowers can be dated back to ancient Egypt, where they were made from shaved horn. And then in China, where they were made from silk, porcelain and paper. In ancient Greece, they were made from finely tooled silver and gold metals. 
and in ancient Rome, um, artificial flowers were made from wax. And the point is, is that, you know, obviously flowers are seasonal. And when the earth no longer yields natural flowers, their absence is missed intensely. And so certainly since ancient Egypt, human beings have made artificial flowers in various forms using various materials. And by the 19th century, this had emerged into a major ancillary trade that supported elite fashion, the haute couture houses in Paris, and also the mass production industries. Yeah. And and you note in the book specifically, I'm quoting you, it was in Paris where the industry evolved. That artificial flower making was to find its most refined and creative expression in fashion. So why specifically Paris? And can you tell us a little bit about the industry there? Who was making the flowers? You know, what was this process like? You know, just an overview. (laughs) Well, the industry in Paris emerged very, very slowly from the 14th century as a very small specialist industry and um, interestingly, actually supplying flowers for artists when oh, they didn't have flowers to paint. It gradually evolved, but very, very slowly over a long, long period of time. And then it starts growing really, really quickly. And it's to do with the development of dyes, of materials, of metal tooling and the development of the couture industries. So in 1820, in Paris, there are just 100 flower making firms, which might have employed maybe up to a thousand workers. By 1865, when we've got the haute couture industries are really very well established, there's some 10,000 um, workers in Paris alone, mostly wow. women and young girls working in the industries. It's one of the major employers of women in Paris in the late 19th century. And what really fascinated me doing the research, I'd been interested in artificial flowers for years and years and years and had always wanted to do something, was that the rose makers were regarded as the most elite in the flower making workforce the best rose makers were regarded as the most highly skilled of all workers. They were paid more and there were even surveys undertaken which reported that they married, and I'm saying this in inverted commas, better, which meant that rose workers were more likely to marry skilled workers than the makers of forget-me-nots and other flowers. <sighs> it's so fascinating. I was so intrigued by that in your book. I was like, huh, who knew? And so it was regarded as a real craft in Paris. There were lengthy apprenticeships required it was a highly respected skill that, you know, required a lot of training. From childhood within families, children were trained to work within this industry. And in Paris, it was regarded as an absolute skill, so much so that there were so many workshops that there were even workshops devoted not only to roses, but to rose flowers and rose buds. So it was really specialist industry, hugely respected. And it was it was considered that the finest rose makers always work from nature. Yeah. So they had they were bringing in flowers too. Absolutely. They were bringing flowers into the workplace and copying them and, you know, could spend two or three days making one exquisite rose. Wow. That's amazing. Well, interestingly in that industry is the fact that, especially in the 19th century, that the skilled workers were women, not the men. So the men undertook the more, um, the less skilled work, like the cutting out of multiple layers of petals, Um, the basic dyeing of the petals, not the tinting, which women did. So within the industry, the women occupied the more highly skilled, more highly paid work, which, yeah, is exceptional, certainly at that time. Yeah. And also, like, speaking of this, you know, hierarchy within, within the trade of making not only flowers, but specifically roses, 
you know, Paris may have been kind of the crown jewel of this art form, but you also write about um, the artificial flower industries in London and in, and in New York in the book. So what was happening in London and New York and how did their flowers differ from those that were being produced in France and specifically Paris? Well, going right back to my beginning, I've always been interested in the working conditions of people working within the clothing industries ever since Lou persuaded me, well, since I got the working conditions of tailors as my subject. So I've always been interested in women workers, particularly in various areas of the dressmaking trade. So it was always something I was going to investigate. But whereas in Paris, the making of artificial flowers and roses in particular is regarded as an art and a highly respected craft form, which is shown at you know the international exhibitions, in London and then slightly later in New York, when the industries develop, the preoccupation is primarily with quantity rather than quality. And both industries are surveyed because they demonstrate the worst aspects of exploited labour, um, of sweated labour, of child labour, of a lot of home labour, which becomes hidden labour, which becomes the most exploited of all. And there are major industries in New York and in London. And the one thing that London had that was exceptional was it um, it excelled in, it was famous for making black roses, which were formed part of mourning rituals, which of course England did much to promote um, following the death of Albert. Um, Victoria sort of developed this whole cult of mourning. But black roses were made outside of London on the whole in Manchester. And the problem with the flower making trade was that interestingly, flowers tend to be worn when those they replicate are in bloom. So even though artificial flowers could be worn all year round, they tend to be worn in the summer months or spring months, whereas feathers historically were worn in the winter months. And in today's industry where sort of seasons and seasonal collections are sort of becoming eroded, it's important to remember that in the 19th century, you know, it was a a rigidly seasonal industry. And although the rose was one flower that remained constantly fashionable and there was an ongoing demand for it, you know, the workers were laid off during the winter months. If they did do production, um, their rate went right down. And so there were major surveys into both industries, as I say, because they did demonstrate the worst aspects of labour exploitation, and not least because often when they did take place in workshops, it's multiple workers working in tiny, tiny rooms. A lot of them get terrible lung complaints because of smoke inhalation. Um, They get eyesight problems, but most publicised was the fact that the dyes they used were incredibly toxic, the red and green dyes. And these same dyes were um, used to paint fashion plates, as obviously you know, April. But in 1862, the Times newspaper reported that the green dye used to colour a single flower leaf was so toxic that it was capable of killing a child. Wow. I mean, so they're working in terrible conditions, being poorly paid, you know, living in bad housing and being poisoned. But after about mid-1860s, it's very rare that those really toxic dyes continue to be used. Yeah. And we have actually touched on this a couple different times on the podcast. So our regular listeners will be will be familiar with that rather tragic tidbit of history. So the flower makers themselves were working under these conditions. I'm hoping also you might tell us a little bit about the plight of the young women and maybe not so young women who also worked as flower sellers during the 19th century. Yeah, I got really interested in fresh flower sellers as well. The fresh flower industry really flourished from the mid 19th century with the availability of plants and the increasing urbanization of society. 
And so on a lot of busy thoroughfares, um, often outside stations, young women, well, not just young women, but women and girls started to sell flowers. The most elite flower sellers worked from florists, which were sort of like interior retail premises, but that was exceptional. Most flowers were sold on the street and irrespective of their age, flower sellers were near universally described as flower girls. Mm-hmm. And the industry completely emerged in the mid-19th century. It became a major industry, whereas a decorative corsage, which might be really quite complicated to make, might be made by a, you know, a specialist florist. It became really fashionable for men to wear a rose in their buttonhole, and they were just often combined perhaps with a piece of fern, and they were sold by flower sellers on the streets. And again, they were really exploited labour in Britain. They were subject to sort of investigations by social investigators like Mayhew and Charles Booth. Well, they were they were in a challenging position within society, one could argue, right? Yeah, they occupied, um, flower sellers occupied an ambiguous role within society. You know, they were women selling nature's most beautiful products on the street. And they're women trying to earn a living. On a positive level, they feature in lots of sort of occupational typographies as workers who are contributing to national economies, to family economies, but they're also portrayed as women with loose sexual morals. Mm -hmm. And they're in some ways feared as sort of feeding into this broader mid to late 19th century fear of class slippage. So they're castigated as well Mm -hmm. and subject to all sorts of criticisms. We see a lot of depictions of flower sellers within um, art and illustration of the period as well, which I think is, I think is really quite interesting. Yeah, and also in Pygmalion and um, My Fair Lady, it's, of course, you know, is the story of trying a flower seller who's desperate to work in a florist who agrees to be inverted, turned into a lady in inverted commas, um, but is completely exploited in the process. Amy. Thank you so much for joining us on Dressed. Where can people find you if they'd like to learn more? Well, thank you. I've been following your podcast and loved it. So I'm honored and really pleased to have been part of it. Thank you. I think I've, I've been badgering you to come on for a couple of years now. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm a very late to Instagram. Very, very late, as in two months ago. <laughs> um, I call all my lectures objects of a passion because that's where they all start. So I call them all objects of a passion and then have a different subtitle. So I'm Amy Delahaye, curator. My whole Instagram feed is now devoted to objects of a passion number one, which is roses. And then object number two will be my next project. Oh, fun. I love this. I like the, the carry out, out of, of, of like curatorial artistic practice via Instagram. <laughs> well, also for someone who's been so late to social media, but also I should say more so is the Centre for Fashion Curation at London College of Fashion, where I'm joint director with Judith Clark. The wonderful, inevitable Judith Clark. <laughs> yeah, to teach students and to sort of explore and develop practices and ideas within fashion curation. Amy, thank you so much. We can't wait for the exhibition to open and we will, listeners, we will keep you posted when it does. Thank you, April. Thank you. Amy, thank you so much for joining us on Dressed. We cannot wait to hear more on Thursday's episode specifically about how fashion designers have revered the rose in their creation. April, as you know, Paul Paré, one of my all-time favorite designers. Of course. (laughs) As you all mentioned, the rose was the logo of his house, which was very much part of the branding of the Poiré empire, which encompassed not only fashion, but also interior design, cosmetics, fragrances. The rose was everywhere. 
Yeah, and he was kind of one of those very first fashion designers to like kind of expand into lifestyle branding outside of just clothing. And of course, that is like very much commonplace today. We don't even think about it. Like we don't even think about the fact that there are Michael Kors sunglasses and that you could potentially buy, you know, Dion van Furstenberg luggage. But Paré was kind of like one of those first people to kind of dip his toe into that and and, and set that all up for the future. So if you'd like to learn a little bit more about Paré, we have actually already done an episode on him. It was in our very first season of Dressed because like he is, I think to both of us, Cass, like a foundational fashion designer, like moving forward into like modernism. So check that out if you haven't already. Yeah. And that's also certainly important to mention that Poiré is significant in like this birth of the modern fashion, which of course we talk about because it's so often attributed to one Coco Chanel, who, you know, Chanel number five, modern fashion, (laughs) first to bob the hair, first to introduce, um, you know, modern comfortable clothing to women. Not so true. No, no. And also did not invent the little black dress. Just exactly. Saying. Which I do have on my <laughs> list of future fashion history mysteries to debunk the myth of the little black dress. But until then, that does it for us today, dress listeners. Please join us on Thursday for part two of our chat with Amy DeLaHaye, where we, as April said, specifically speak about how the rose has been revered by countless fashion designers. Until then, may you consider the world of Flora residing in your closet next time you get dressed. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each and every week. We will catch you all on Thursday for part two with Professor Dillahay. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.